Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, uh, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. I'm Jonathan Cake, and my guest this week is the brilliant Zachary Quinto, everybody. Now, you know Zach from TV shows like Heroes and from playing Dr. Spock in the Star Trek movies, but you may not know that he is a brilliant stage actor. He's done tons of American classics like Angels in America. Boys in the Band. He was in a famous production of uh, Tennessee Williams's Glass Menagerie, directed by John Tiffany in New York. And you can see him right now on stage if you're in London at the Noel Coward Theatre in James Graham's Best of Enemies, starring opposite friend of the podcast, David Harewood, episode number five, six, can't remember. Anyway, he and David strike sparks off each other. Zach plays a brilliant Gore Vidal. But I saw him last summer, late last summer, me and the stage manager went to the Geffen Theatre in LA to watch Zach playing George opposite Callista Flockhart's Martha, Callista Flockhart from Alimobile, in um, Edward Albee's masterpiece, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And we talk a lot about that, especially (laughs) an amazing thing. That happened the night me and the stage manager went to see it, which I still get slightly sweaty thinking about. And (laughs) that's very enjoyable to get into discussing with Zach. It was really sort of unforgettable in an awful kind of way. Anyway, we start off by talking about Los Angeles and the architecture of Los Angeles, because when I interviewed Zach, it was a beautiful, hazy, late summer Los Angeles morning, and we were looking out from his house in sort of eastish LA, Griffith Park area, all the way over the city, the most spectacular view. That's sort of a totally untheater related line of inquiry, but quite enjoyable. Oh, and uh, Zach Quinto will be Zach Quinn too. <laughs> oh dear, dear. It's a double episode, is really what I'm trying to say. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Quinto and Mr. Cake, to the stage, please. We have the house. This is your beginner's call. Oh, you're recording. Well, that was <laughs> unceremonious. So. Yeah, I know, he's like that. He's thinking, Zach, you're so... Lovely to do this. You I'm really so happy are to be here. So sweet to do it. By the way, I should say we're at your beautiful house in Los Angeles. And if I 
start drifting off during one of your long <laughs> rambling answers. answers. Yeah, I might just you might just find me looking out over yeah. the city of broken dreams. Mm-hmm. Tell me first of all, what do you think when you look at this? What is what is the vista of LA? What does it mean to you when you look out over a view like this, this particular city? I've seen it from so many different angles and over so many different years. I mean, I first came to LA 22 years ago. I can remember the rituals that I used to have around auditioning, hiking up on the mornings of important auditions. I used to hike up Bronson Canyon to this one particular spot that would allow me to sit and look out at a view like this, you know, and, uh, and so it's just interesting to have perspective on it that changes over years. Yes. So you would hike, was it a ritual for the, for the audition so you could sort of see the city in some context? No, I mean, it had, it had less to do with the city and more to do with my own process of clearing my head and Got not it. being so wrapped up in the expectation attachment or, you know, uh, anticipation of the outcome. But yes. yeah. A becoming but, glow. But the view of the city, I mean, LA is such a city of perspectives. Yeah. Are you down in it? Are you up yeah. above it? Are you, you know, where do you relate to yeah, yeah, yeah. the city and everything it represents and what's going on in the, in the guts of it? And so I think a view is to me in Los Angeles, one of the most essential elements of creating a home. You know, if, if you ask me, like, what are your, what are your deal breakers on, on looking for a home here, right. uh, a view is really yeah, at the top from. of that list for me. I completely agree. It's well, that's also right, isn't it? Because it's a it's a state of vistas. The Californianness mm-hmm. of LA is what mm-hmm. I always love about it. I mean, to me, it is such a physically the man made part of LA is such a physically unbecoming <laughs> landscape for all the outsized egos in this city. There are so few memorable legacy landmarks. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All those titans of 19th century industry who built New York. Yeah. And you'd think there would be extraordinary yeah. sort of temples celebrating Area them. One. It looks like a hastily erected well, holiday resort in Corfu. To be to fair, <laughs> to be fair, I think also the uh, propensity of for earthquakes here is yes. something that I, I think mitigated the architectural development of this. So you can't build up as much right. here as you can right, in other right, places. Right. I can see the Sunset Tower Hotel from, oh, yes. from here, from upstairs. I can. Right. That's one of my favorite yeah, architectural landmarks of, yeah. of Hollywood. And it's true. And I'm also being a bit of an idiot English tourist cliche because you look closer at. LA architecturally, and there's all sorts of actually interesting things. Well, it's but more it's, in how it's more in houses, you yeah, know, the architecture yeah, yeah. of houses here. And yeah. I mean, we're in a this house that I'm that I'm living in now is a, a Richard Neutra house built in 1936. It? So it's got architectural significance, and Get you. there's a lot of uh, of incredible uh, Southern California architecture. You know, the Schindlers, the Lautners, the Neutras, yeah. Yeah. the A. Quincy Joneses. Yes. There's a lot of amazing specific and unique to to this time and place, you know, or not this time, but this place. Totally. Yeah, it has a particular aesthetic, right, which mm-hmm. is kind of inimitable and mm-hmm. it can only be this place. You talk about auditions when you were a younger actor. I used to drive in from... I, I always used to stay on the west side. I think to Brits, the west side is a kind of, you know, mm-hmm. clustering near the beach. That's it feels right. sort of safe and it feels right. like we're not really committing because Brits don't like to commit to anything. We mm-hmm. like to pretend it's all a hobby that we don't really care that uh-huh. much about. So if you stay by the beach, you can sort of pretend 
to yourself that you're on vacation and not really trying to stake it all on <laughs> your uh, whether you get the guest star your on. desperate ambition. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but when I would drive, when I would drive into Beverly Hills, it was always the same. I passed. I can't tell which one it is now as I'm looking out, but I, I would pass the Larry Flint building. Oh right, you know the porn mogul sure. Larry Flint. And it was almost a trigger. I would just feel my shoulders just uh, infinitesimally creeping uh-huh. up towards my ears. That's uh, Robertson and Wilshire, I think. There you go. Yeah. With the tension, like I was passing through the portcullis uh-huh. of a castle in which I was going to get hung, drawn, quartered. <laughs> you could see how I was looking forward to all this. Everything just sort of tensed up. Yeah, like everything. The balls would cinch. Yeah. Everything just got a little tighter. Now, listen, two things. One, I need to, first of all, say I could do this podcast for an awfully long time and never have a voice this delicious mm. on the other side of the microphone. I know you have an extremely uh, uh, rich tool, uh, <laughs> a, a tool of your uh, trade, obviously. Sure. Rich, sure. dark, chocolatey tool, and <laughs> still talking about the voice. Um, but the reason I think it's reached all yes. extreme Barry White proportions, yeah, yes, right, yes. is because you're in the last week Correct. of your show. Correct. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's true. Imperishable classic of 20th century American theater yes. by Edward Albee at the Geffen Playhouse, yes. which I had the deep, deep privilege to see a couple of weeks ago. I think it was yeah. a couple of weeks ago now. Yeah. Uh, and I really want to talk to you more, but you are in the midst. You're coming towards the end of it. Hurtling towards, yes. Hurtling towards the end of it. Yeah. And, okay, let's start there. How are you feeling about it? I am feeling... It's always complicated to end something, right? To come sure. to the end of a journey that has demanded so much of me. It's far and away the most challenging experience I've ever had Isn't in it? my career, full stop, really? let alone on stage. You know, it's, it's simply the most challenging thing I've ever done. And wow. consequently, I think, really, one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. It, it feels like a blur. I can't really believe that we're almost done, but everything in this circumstance at the Geffen, which is an amazing place to work, I've never worked there before, is very truncated. You know, uh, it's a subscription house, a nonprofit theater. It's, you know, it's got a season. And so there was only a one week potential extension built in, which we're in the middle of right now. We have six shows more, including tonight. And so it, it ha- it's happened very quickly. It's, it was a, uh, it burned hot and fast. And, uh, and I don't think I'll really kind of have any sense of the impact of it for some time after we're, we're done, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. But tell me one thing. Are you feeling unbelievably alive? Yes. People say, oh, you must be exhausted. This yeah. must be, how do you do it? You yeah. know, quite the contrary. I feel, uh, I feel really invigorated. I feel really, uh, yeah, alive is a great word yeah. for it. Isn't that an incredible thing? You can be absolutely eviscerated uh-huh. by something you're doing that you feel every single night. You know where, how steep the hill is. Yeah. You think, I don't know how you get there. Yeah. You get there inevitably because you have to. Right, you have to. Uh, you have to or you will be humiliated. It's just not, it's <laughs> not, you'll be humiliated, of course, but it's also just not an option mm-hmm. not to get there. Mm-hmm. 
But then you have this extraordinary sensation. I always remember it from days when I'm doing something that is using every fucking mm-hmm. atom. You have this extraordinary sensation of never being more alert, awake. There's some other part of you, which perhaps you don't use during the day, that you know is active. It's a mm-hmm. light that's on in you, mm-hmm. right? Is that, is that, yeah. Does that feel recognizable? I think it's really true. You know, to be fair, my daily schedule has certainly been affected by and adjusted to what's required of me every night. I do take more time for myself. I do keep things clear in my schedule when I can. I do rest more. I do, you know, I, I, but there is something like you say, activated. There's a part of me that absolutely delights in the knowledge that at 530, I'll get in my car and head over there and have this experience that is the most demanding thing that that I've ever done. Why? Well, I mean, you know, just the sheer volume of text in this piece uh, in and of itself is is a, a huge... I've never had more to say and, you know, I've done theater you know for a long time and and i've done epic sort of big pieces like angels in america and glass menagerie a lot of i i've really found this path for myself which i love uh and am deeply grateful for which is american classics you know boys in the band glass menagerie uh angels in america now this i love that journey for myself and i and i hope to be able to continue it while doing other things and New works are always very exciting to me, and being a part of developing new plays is something that I've done over the years. But there is something about reimagining, re reapproaching, and rediscovering for myself and hopefully for audiences these classic American plays, but none of them as demanding as this. You know, Angels in America is also a three and a half hour play, and we did two of them, so it's really seven hours of theater. But, you know, I played Lewis and there are huge chunks of time where Lewis is off stage right, and there's right. an ensemble of actors who are sort of dancing right. in and out of the experience. And, you know, with Virginia Woolf, the lights come up on uh, us and, and we almost never really leave the yeah, stage. Yeah. I think the longest break I have is at the beginning of Act 3. But aside from that, you know, maybe I get a minute or two off stage before I come back on. And, uh, and aside from that, we're on the whole time. So it's, you know, it, it never relents that we are responsible for being the engines of this, of this experience. And that, that, and then on top of it, of course, just the emotional magnitude of what these characters are experiencing and how they're relating to one another and what the play is delving into. It's massive. It, it is. It's massive. Uh, yeah. I've seen the play twice before. I saw David Suchet and Diana Rigg do it at the mm-hmm. Almeida years ago. Mm-hmm. It was great. Mm-hmm. She was great, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. He was amazing. I saw Tracy mm-hmm. Letts and Amy Morton mm-hmm. a few, what is it, like five, six years ago now? No, more than that. I think I you think saw it, right, too? was 12 years ago. Oh, gosh, was it really that long ago? God Let's say. find out. You keep talking. You can look it up. Good, good, good. Uh, I did see that. I've seen it twice as well. The Kathleen Turner, Bill yeah. Irwin production. Right. And then that, Amy Morton and Tracy. So I just wanted to say that I have never, love loving those two productions as I did, I've never seen a production of the play that has made me understand it more Mm -hmm. than yours. Mm. Your one made me... Ten years ago. Ten years ago. Yeah, 2012. I think COVID did something very special to my sense of of time. time. For sure. Everything just feels Mm -hmm. wobbly. 
I've never understood it in the way that I did when I saw you uh, and Callista do it. And I tell you what I understood so extraordinarily was this sense that this is the greatest play about love, greatest modern play about love I can remember seeing. Mm. And it felt to me like this unbelievable sense of a, of a sort of almost sadomasochistic relationship, mm-hmm. right? Within which, which is bounded by this extraordinary care mm-hmm. these two mm-hmm. people have for each mm-hmm. other. In a, in a weird way, it was the greatest advertisement for what is possible within the boundaries mm-hmm. of a relationship. Mm-hmm. The greatest plea for infinite understanding and nuance and forgiveness for crimes done mm-hmm. to each other emotionally. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, I tell you, I came with my wife, Julianne. <laughs> it was an extraordinary thing. It wasn't just because you're seeing another couple fighting for three, three hours, 20 minutes. It was that we felt oddly, what's the word, refreshed or mm. validated mm. within all the scope of our sure, love for own, each other. Right. Do you know what I mean? And the complexity I of mean, it. What an extraordinary thing to feel. That's great. That's a high compliment. Man, it was, it was fantastic. But you must feel that extremity, right? The extremity of it every night. Yes. How you have to figure out that extremity, which is, of course, probably what keeps you living in some version of the extremity during the day, mm-hmm. even while you're taking your naps and hmm. being, doing all the self-care to do the thing in the evening. Mm-hmm. Are you sort of aware that there's a part of your door that's been open that you're going to go through again that night, but it's still open? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I definitely... I'm an actor who always has and and strives to maintain a, a like a DMZ between my my life and my work, right? Like a space that I put. I don't know what DMZ. Uh, like a demilitarized zone, oh, like a like space that. between North and South Korea, I thought you right? Were talking the, about TMZ. Sort of, from, oh yeah, no, like God a, forbid. Some some candid no, news. The, <laughs> but this this space of neutrality between oh, okay. my life and my work that I that I kind of actively pass through to get to where I need to go at night. So, you know, I, I do feel like there is that, that that space is opened and I preserve it, I maintain it. And, and I think like we were talking before, the mics were on about like rituals, right? And that idea of my journey to the theater every night begins at a certain time in my day, begins here at the house with an awareness and then it begins with a sort of process and then it begins with you know, then it then it feeds into the drive to the theater and then my walk in and all the things that I do, which are inane. They're not particularly, um, uh, what's the word, um, significant necessarily, right. but they get me through that space and into, uh, you know, the moment where I get dressed and get on. Can you talk stuff. about them specifically? Would you mind? Are uh, they always the same for every show? Or is no, it particular no, for definitely this one? not. They're, they're really about, a lot of them have to do with getting myself ready to go, my animals, right? I've got two dogs right, who are right. sleeping here peacefully. But uh, so I, I try to walk them, take them out, do a thing, right, with them to make sure that they're taken care of, feed them, they're good. I start to to put my head in the place of uh, the beginning of the show, just sort of loosely sort of imagining, like thinking about what that experience is with Callista, backstage as you know the stage manager says we got the house we're going you know we're going 
I always shower before I leave for the show. You do? Always, yeah. Okay. That's a big part. Like, I always have to be showered yes. before I do a play. I always have to shower almost before I go on stage. It's a really <laughs> weird... Like, I shower between shows. If we have two shows, I always shower yeah, between right. shows. It's a kind of Saturday night going out on it's, the town it, feel to me. To me, it's about... Yeah, it, it's, a, it's really about freshness. It's yeah. really about, like, bringing... Nothing from my own experience right. of the day, whether it's conscious or unconscious, right. with me into this experience on stage. Right. So a shower really becomes part of it. Then what? Then I... Eat? When are we eating? You know, I don't eat a lot. Okay. I don't eat close to the show. I eat like a... I'll have like a protein boxy kind of thing right. or like a, you know, like a couple hard-boiled eggs. Right. And I do that around... 536 okay. so about an hour and a half before the show right caffeine's really important oh to it me. is yeah 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 I'm so always happy have a coffee before the show god i'm so happy you say that yeah if i don't have a coffee yeah, before yeah. a show yeah. i just think it's a waste of time i just want to go up front and say i'm so sorry everybody i think i couldn't get my coffee i fully agree i think co i think coffee i mean coffee's a big ritual in my life and getting coffee going out for i'm not uh, i know right. some people the ritual is making it and doing yeah, yeah. it Mine is more, I think also a lot because I have my dogs in my life. So walking them and getting a coffee is like part of my ritual in New York and in, in my life life. But right. it's a huge part of my ritual for any show I do. Finding the coffee shop by the theater, going to the coffee shop, getting a coffee. Yes, yes. Um, As I was driving over here, I was thinking about coffee and I was thinking about, not to do with theater, but I was reminded of Bill Nye, you know, that great mm -hmm. English actor, Bill Nye, mm -hmm. said once that coffee is the enemy of the actor. Really? Yeah. He thinks that it takes you, us, one, away from our basic state of relaxation. That it's artificial energy that you're uh, laying on top of an already jacked nervous system with all that adrenaline going on stage. He has a thing about needing to be at a sort of base calm level. Uh, so whatever happens from the day, if you're feeling exhausted from the day, you don't not acknowledge that. Right. Oh, yeah, well. You sound very similar to me, which is these people have paid money. They don't need to see that I had my a bad level of relaxation. Quite, <laughs> my base um, level of exhaustion. Love, first of all, he's amazing. And he's I, amazing. everything he does, I find, does have a kind of quality of real openness. So I admire that. And certainly everyone is different. Everyone has their process. Totally. I have a really consistent meditation practice. And so meditation, I should add, is also a huge part of my right. ritual. Usually after the dog walk, before the shower right. comes my meditation. And so that to me is, is my acknowledgement of where I am and what I do. I don't think that coffee undermines that for me, for my own physiology and my own relationship to, to caffeine. That to me is a, it's an energetic thing. And Call it what you want, but to me, it's it's uh, it just gets me to yeah. a to a level that I feel I need to be at in order totally. to do me, what's required of me. Me too. I have exactly the same feeling. It just mm. opens up my portals because you also the, the irony of doing a part like this, right? Is that even while we've been talking about this light that's on all the time mm -hmm. and a sort of an aliveness that you feel, you are shattered. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think it's sure. fair to say, right? Sure. You, you sort of there's a kind of weird energy deficit, yeah. particularly yeah. towards the end of a run of something. Yeah, part this monumental yeah. man. It's a huge beast you're wrestling to the floor yeah. every night. Little thing. Do you say hi to the other actors when you go in? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Always check in. Always. Oh yeah. I mean, do it's you, hard you, not to. Anyway, we're right. Sure. 
there together. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I love to f- hear where people are. You know, we check in before the show, during right. the show, and after the show. Right, right. There's so many different ways that people process things and do things. You know, I remember this story that I heard about when they were doing the uh, Death of a Salesman that Mike Nichols directed, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Linda Eman in, and Andrew Garfield. And yeah. yes. I can't remember who was the, I didn't see, oh, Finn. I think it was Finn Whitrock. Yes, it was. But the story that I heard about uh, them, no one in the theater was allowed to speak to the four of them after a half hour. None of the Lomans were allowed to be, except they could speak to each other, I guess. Okay. But I, I mean, I, don't, I wasn't there. I don't know that yeah. this is true or not. But, but the idea that there are people who have very specific right. and very immersive and very method-driven um, processes. Right. Um, and and I respect, I've learned to really respect what everybody brings to the table. But for me personally, I feel like there is a joy in bringing myself to the process and then, you know, immersing myself in what I'm doing. And those are, those are separate things. I mean, they're separate experiences and, you know, I've trained and I've, and I've worked and I've learned and I've grown uh, in order to be able to understand the difference between those two aspects of myself and not need to lose one in order to fully embrace the other. That to me is part of the, the craft of acting. So I love to like check in with my friends and my cast and yeah. my people. And I, do, I think it to me is always too much work to try to like control the environment around me to the degree that preserves whatever internal kind of landscape of integrity or isolation or, you know, total immersion in what I'm doing. Right. Like it's more it just the way my mind works. It takes up too much space sure. and time to try to do that. I actually prefer a line of demarcation beyond which I'm having one experience and short of which I'm having another. And that's the balance. And I love that actually. So I love the process of that. I'm never happier than when I'm in the cycle of doing a play. I just simply am not, you know, the idea of living my life, doing my thing, having the conversations I need to have about my other life and my other work and the other things I've got going on, both personal, creative, professional, whatever, and then showing up Mm. and really closing the door to my dressing room, Mm. you know, assembling everything, my thoughts, my spirit, my emotions, my psychology into what I need to do to step out of that room and go on stage. Yeah. I love that process. Isn't it extraordinary? It really is. If it's a great play, particularly like, Virginia Woolf, sure. it's like an art gallery. I always think it's like uh, you get to look around this masterpiece from uh-huh, a different uh-huh. angle yeah, tonight. Yeah. The That's light so will great. hit it a different way. Totally. And you're like, oh, fuck, look at yeah. that in there. Yeah. Now you're talking about <laughs> the Lomans only being able to talk to each other. I suddenly was just sort of racking my brain about sort of method, mm. pre-show method behavior that I've ever encountered. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is quite what happened. But I remember when I was doing Medea on Broadway that Deborah Warner directed. Fiona Shaw played Medea uh-huh. in 2000. And, oh, Jesus Christ, like three, three uh-huh. or four. Uh-huh. And I would knock on Fiona's, I was playing Jason, playing her yeah. husband who leaves her. I would knock on Fiona's door every night to just see her. And she would always appear topless. <laughs> she would always come to the door without a shirt or bra. And she would say, hello, hello, good evening. Do you not think my... Um, my breasts are rather fantastic. 
this evening, as though they were sort of changed from, <laughs> from night to night. Do you not know think, actually, I'm in rather fantastic shape, a rather wonderful rack? But, wow. And I suddenly, and now, of course, I, so much so that I bought her a bespoke bra. I bought her a made-to-measure bra. I found out her sizes. I got a Rigby Impella bra. I went all the way with this because her breasts have become such an intrinsic part of the life of that production. But now I'm thinking, was this a Medea yeah, thing? Yeah, right, right. To flash the boobs. Sure. Just say, Jason, look you know, you're look what you're missing, you know what honey. Mean? Jeez. Say goodbye to these, Michael. That is a uh, that is a particularly <laughs> fantastic ritual. Oh God, that was an extraordinary time. So uh, let me just continue with this ritual idea. Uh, I, I didn't do this for any of the other podcasts, but I'm so fascinated by this idea because you're in it now, and mm-hmm. I want to f- picture your evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, physical warm up, vocal warm up, vocal warm up. Yes, uh, I do that in the car. Actually, when the, I'm the vocal woman, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do some of it in the car. I do the breath stuff in my room right. when I get to the theater, right. but I do a lot of like trills, sort of. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't know about hums, but like uh, ng sort yeah, of like yeah, yeah, yeah. cascades yeah. and uh, and stuff driving. Um, Is this and- stuff that you learned at Carnegie yeah, sure, Mellon? Was sure. that was that the place where you uh, yeah had a voice coach? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It, to me, it's just really about uh, bringing my voice back up, yeah. um, like really kind of broadening a range. Right, 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 right. Um, so that I do. And then breath stuff is super important to right. me. That I do in my dressing room. Right. That is a lot of hissing, uh, really just like a, a, a long, sustained diaphragmatic hissing um sometimes pulsing sometimes uh straight hissing for as long as i can i try to get up to i try to do five i try to work up to being able to do it for 30 seconds without stopping five times okay so that takes a little while i do that yeah so i do that i do some stretching some roll downs and roll ups uh i kind of do also i put on music then after i do my breath stuff uh, and I do a lot of opening lower chakras. I love chakra stuff. And then I put on, first, I mean, I go get my wig on, then at half hour. Uh, and then I do, I put silver sharpie in my eyebrows to gray them up. I do that myself. And then, <laughs> silver sharpie? Yeah, literally, silver sharpie. <laughs> is that ever going to come out? It is out. It comes yeah, I can out, see yeah. it right now. But I thought sharpie was kind of permanent. No, not on your hair. I mean, it, it, it actually holds well, is, and then it comes off at the end with some alcohol. If anything is going to demystify the it's magic of the theater, it's that you use silver, silver sharpie. sharpie. It's, it's this podcast and the revelation. The world's most famous Silver sharpie to gray my eyebrows. But then I put on my uh, clothes, and that's its own ritual. You know, I have an order in which I sort of get dressed, ah, and it just happens. I mean, it's yeah, just sort of, you know, the, and these are all things that evolve. That's the thing I love about theater is these aren't decisions I make. I don't make the decision to, to you know, oh, now it's this time I have to do that, da, da, da. But it's like as I'm getting into a run of something, yeah. my patterns of behavior become habits, and then my habits become rituals, yeah. you know. And, and then I do some... Uh, just some sort of like centering before I go out of my room. And then Calista and I usually try to walk down stairs together or around the same time. And we, we always have a little confab before the play starts, which I love. So that's, you know, that's, and, and it changes, it changes for, 
every show. Right, it changes right, right. for whatever experience you know I'm having at that given time. Tell me about uh, afterwards. Do you do you just go straight home? Yes. Do you have a? You do always. Okay, I, I visit with people briefly that come see the show in the lobby. Right. And I and that's the last I use my voice before the next right. day. Are we eating? Are we drinking when we come no. home? No. No. Sometimes I will order food because there aren't very many great food options right. uh, here in Los Angeles late at night. And I'm not really of a mind to come home and prepare a right. meal. So either I order something and then, then that's that or I don't. It's quite hard not to, don't you think? Sometimes. I, mean, I, often think, I, I, I try not to eat after because it's late at night and everything yes. else. But it fucks with your sleep. But, you know, you've just done this. Yeah, sometimes just- it's unavoidable. Sometimes I'm like, no, i got to have a, something. But now that I'm seeing into the future beyond this play, then it helps to sort of right. change my habits. Do you, do you want your rewards after the play? Do you feel like you deserve it? Rewards meaning? Yeah, I don't know. Something delicious oh. or some treats. Personally, I want everything that life can give me after a show. I rarely get it, but I feel, I feel like I fucking deserve this. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense of accomplishment that I feel uh, at the end of each night, having done it again. But there's also a sense of responsibility that I feel to, especially to my voice. Yeah, yeah, sure. To kind of lay low. Uh, I don't know. I think it's also very different being in L.A. Yeah. than it is being in New York or London doing right. a play. Right. But I, certainly in New York, I'm sure if I were doing this play in New York, I would be going out afterwards. Right. No question about it. Um, there's just nowhere to go when you come yeah, down from a play at sure. 11 o'clock at night in Westwood. You know, the place to go is the parking lot to get your car and go home. Jumping in Westwood at 11 yeah, p.m. For anybody who doesn't know Westwood, it's the home of UCLA. Yeah, right? and, we're right uh, in the middle of UCLA campus. Yeah, and it's basically, it stops. It closes yeah. at 9.15. Yeah, there's nothing. Tell me about fear. Tell me what part fear or adrenaline, if you want to put yes. it like that, plays in the exchange. Adrenaline is how I would classify it. Fear is, to me, something that has no place on the stage. Right, right. It does uh, sometimes make an attempt to creep in yeah, to yeah, the yeah. experience. It's so interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the middle of the play, first act maybe 30 minutes into the first act, 25, 30 minutes in. And I just completely went up on my line. Did completely you? went up on my line. Now, the interesting thing is like at this point, and this play is so beautifully structured and so well written that even as precise as it is, there is an elasticity to it. So uh, I find often that like, if I'm nimble enough, I'm always able to pivot to the next point of departure, right. right? The next thought, the next idea. So I went up on my line. I think I skipped maybe just a, a minor exchange of maybe three or four lines, but it was a port. It was a fear portal. Yeah. It was a fear portal yeah. that opened and stayed open for days. <sighs> and I became very destabilized. It felt it was very destabilizing to me period, right. specifically around that section of the play, but also just in general. Like if, if that could happen there, when I know it's so intrinsically sure. by now, does that mean, could it happen, you know? And then when I start to, in even the remotest way, allow those thoughts, any space in my head or my experience, 
the game is over. Right. I've, I've, I'm outside of myself. Yeah. I'm, and so it just becomes a very, to me, that is a certain extent where there's this unique combination of surrender and will that you have to find mm-hmm. for myself. I have to find the uh, razor's edge of that to close that portal immediately. It, it cannot be given any uh, power. You know, there are ways to do that, but it took me the rest of that week. I think that was on a Wednesday night, maybe. And it took me longer than usual to overcome the residue of that simple moment of like just an absent, errant kind of blank space that like played in the film, right? Of right. the of that sort of like the film feeding in. The, I don't yeah, know what yeah, metaphor yeah. I'm using right yeah, now. Like yeah, the projectionist. Yeah, projection. Yeah, yeah. That's so, so fascinating to me because the reason I'm trying to do this podcast, which I didn't even explain to you, which I, I'd love to tell you about later, but the reason I'm trying to do it is because I'm trying to figure out lots of complicated ideas all at once. But one of them is why we as human beings need this conspiracy of imagination, mm. why we need it as performers, why we need it as strangers showing up in the dark mm. to watch other strangers perform a mm. story. And you understanding that you can't allow the edifice to fall mm. or even have a crack mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. Because if you do, the whole illusion, the yeah. whole conspiracy of imagination that you are performing in your own head yes, that allows totally. us to suspend our disbelief yeah. and sit there thinking, absolutely, I'm in New Haven yeah. in 1960, whenever it yeah. is. I'm absolutely there. There is no question in my mind that I'm watching an artifice, mm. that we have all conspired to believe this is true means that that little moment, that little tear has to be sewn up Absolutely. immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, and the edifice yes. falls for all of us, yes. right? It's very true. It's a good God, way to put so it. And uh, it, it is a contract that we have all signed. And I have to... I have to do everything in my power to uphold my my end of that yeah. commitment. And so that was just a very interesting moment for me, which I'd never really had before. That is to me the difference between fear and adrenaline. There's always going to be adrenaline. Of course. You know, there's always that oh my goodness, this is about to happen for yeah. the first time. The door opens and there's yeah. 500 people in the seats that heretofore had been empty and that, you know, and sick, then you find, you, just blind your, you blindly sort of find your way through that. That's one thing, right? Like that's the joy, uh, the, the horrible joy of it, right? Like that's yeah. the thing that we come back to. It's like I've never given birth, shocking uh, revelation. Mm. But the the thing you hear about that is like that, you know, we are, women are designed to forget, right. you know, all of the horror of it right. just to remember the joy and right. just to remember the, you know, and, and there is something about that moment of like the first preview or the invited dress or something of like, yeah. oh my God, is this going to be, what is this going to be? How are people going to receive what we've poured ourselves into for the last however long you've been rehearsing something and crafting something to share with an audience. And, uh, and that's, that's something that there's a difference. There's a difference between adrenaline and fear. Totally. Do you think we're addicted to the heightened feeling of an adrenalized state? Um, Is that one of the reasons why you keep coming back to theater? You more than most of your contemporaries I can think of, you know, that this extraordinary thing that you seem to want to do a play every other year yeah that was my thing right well that's been that when i went and did angels in america in 2010 
that was the thing I said that I would do a play every other season. Right. And it did pretty much work out into the pandemic. But uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's the adrenaline of it's, it's the process of it actually okay. for me. It's, uh, it's the discovery of it. It's the, there is something about theater to me, which is, I've talked about this before. I always feel like somewhat of an asshat when I We all say this. feel like asshats. Ass asshats. I yeah. like that. We all feel like asshats talking about it. Part of my, why I want to do this podcast is to say fuck it to everybody yeah, sure. who, because I, 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 that, mm -hmm. that means there's an incredible reticence amongst our generation yeah, yeah. talking about this shit. And I really feel like that's not okay. It's a noble profession. And it's also an odd, difficult, strange, yeah. rarefied thing. Yeah. And I think to talk about it is, well, listen, even if it's just an audience of one, I find it completely <laughs> fascinating. And the ass hattery yeah. is something that I'm all about. Go. Well, great. So that said, you know, I think if you really consider the lineage of theater, there is something not only ritualistic, but spiritual about it. And if you trace it back to its origins, it was a sure. spiritual communion. And I think there is, there's something kind of sacred about that to me that I am fed by mm -hmm. as much as I am a part of the feeding, right? Like the, the nourishing of a culture and the people who seek the thing that you were talking about before in that dark space together communally. There is something for me about the continuation of that and being a part of that. Not to mention the fact that I, I feel strongly that creativity is something that is bigger than a physical embodiment, right? Creativity mm -hmm. is something that's bigger than all of us. And so being able to do a play like mm -hmm. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or The Glass Menagerie allows me to feel connected to a lineage of creativity that is bigger than me, right. that is bigger than Tennessee or Edward Albee or, you know, these ideas, these connections to the human condition, to the, the emotion and the psychology uh, and the complexity of relationship are embodied by these people, but they're not unique to them. They don't simply die with them, right? With these titans of the art form, they exist and they find other expression. They find other embodiment. They find other interpretation. And that's the joy of being a part of the theater is being able to do that and, and do it in our own way. And uh, I love that. And I love feeling connected to that energy that's bigger than me and bigger than them and bigger than all of us. And yeah. And so that to me is part of it as well. The adrenaline, yes, sure. The when it works, it works. And there's nothing like being in a hit, you know, there's nothing oh. like it, right? Do you feel like I do that every successful play is made more successful by the fact that it sort of carries the accumulated weight of all the bad plays <laughs> before it? The, because it's so the bad hard. versions of that play or no, the bad plays? No, I think the bad nights of the theater. Right. I think it's just so, so <laughs> unbelievably hard to do well mm -hmm. that when it hits and everybody knows it hits, mm. you have this palpable sense of not just we can all see the evidence of our own eyes that it works, but the sense that the risk factor that it yeah. might not have worked makes the relief into a kind of waterfall right, right. of pleasure. Well, just like the there's nothing side. like being in a hit, there's nothing like being in a flop that you had to do for the next Shit. six months or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Have you done that? Have you had that? Um, 
I've been lucky. I mean, I've had I've had a lot of really great experiences, have, which yeah. which I've never had to do something that I would show up and say like, oh, right. fuck, you know, no, I haven't. But that said, not everybody loves everything, right? Not everybody's right. going to have the same experience of things. And there's always that there's always that moment when somebody sees something and then they're like, congratulations. That, I mean, wow. Or, you know, their reaction to it is not as like, oh, well, that was an interesting choice of where, you know, you parse someone's reactions. Do you, you are presumably, if you're anything like me, which I suspect you're not because you seem much more, uh, you seem like you have inner resources. You, you, um, I, it's hard, you know, when you come out, particularly if you've hard. got. No, come on, it's always hard. I, do, right? I don't. Think, you just exposed yourself. I don't think that anybody publicly. that does what does we work? do is is immune to the reaction of people whose opinions they care about. Right. Uh, less so about the opinions of people we don't know or care about per se. Right. But like when I have people come to the show who I respect, admire, and otherwise enjoy. You know, I want to know that they feel connected to and ignited by what I've done. Sure, yeah, of course. Yeah. Are your parents still around? They're not. Oh, I'm sorry. did they ever see you do theatre? Yeah, my mom did. My dad died when I was really young. Before I started uh, acting, uh, it's probably part of the reason why I started acting. Huh. Um, but uh, my mom saw me do theatre a lot. Yeah. And what was it like when she was sitting in the stalls? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, she, I felt like her, my reception of my mother's response to my work was always about my mother. In other words, like she was, you know, I didn't look to her for objective feedback. I didn't look to her for, did this work? Did this moment work? You know, I wasn't like, it was my mother. So she was like, oh, you were the best one. You know, that was just sort of like. (laughs) That's all I ever wanted. Exactly. And it was also. Not to get into the complexity of my psychology with my mother, but there was a certain amount of appropriation, you know, that that she sort of, uh, the the phrase, I'm the mother, was uttered by my mother, you know, in many different circles. I'm the mother. So this this gives you some context for her reaction to my work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, that's the end of Act One of Zachary Quinto. Curtain down on Act One. By the way, did you, did anyone spot my Arrested Development reference? Say goodbye to these, Michael. No, just me. Oh.
Okay, please come back and join me for Act 2 after the intermission. You're going to want to hear about Zach's career with the Pittsburgh mini-stars, his role as Munchkin in Wizard of Oz, drinking his way through to Tennessee Williams. Oh, there's also the story of how I met the stage manager and us acting on stage together, my crush on a young actor playing Hamlet at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre in the late 80s, the erotic charge of theatre, and what? extraordinary and awful thing happened the night the stage manager and I went to see Zach in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Please come back and join me for Act Two. It's really fun stuff. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.